Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. friends, welcome back to the No Water Methodist podcast. This should be episode eight, and it's going to be another uh, section of the proclamation of the word from worship this last Sunday. A couple announcements, just in case you're plugged into the community here. Um, we're doing a new directory, so if you want to have your photos taken, you need to get in contact with us ASAP. We're hoping to wrap up this Sunday, which is All Saints Sunday. We're going to be honoring a number of our dearly departed in worship. It's a good Sunday. I hope you can join us. Also, we're going to be taking a tour of the Lighthouse, which is a homeless facility over in Bartlesville. Want to learn a lot about them. That's going to be tomorrow at noon, so you're welcome to join us. Um, this service that we had, it uh, piggybacks off previous ones. We finished up the book of Job. We did the final chapter where Job's fortunes are restored after his repentance. We talk about what that means for us in light of our promises of the kingdom and the fact that we're losing, going through loss and trauma now, what does that have to say about our futures being restored in the kingdom? Um, we covered Psalm 34. We went to Hebrews, where once again we're talking about Jesus being the perfect high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood and what that means and how much of a comfort it is that we have him instead of a, um, a flawed human priest like they had before Jesus or like some people try and have today. And then uh, finally, the story of blind Bartimaeus, uh, which is just uh, a very simple story, a very comforting story, and um, that's how we end worship. So I, uh, I hope you enjoy your time in the Word with us. I hope you, uh, like me, see just how wonderful this church community is, that we can speak about the pure Word and stay together and identify ourselves with the Word of God. I just love being the pastor here and uh, doing what we do every Sunday, so... Uh, I'm a happy little preacher. So anyway, enjoy your time uh, meditating on God's word with me, and God bless you. So this is Job chapter 42. We're just going to do the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. Listen to the word of God. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? That's what God said at the, uh, three chapters ago whenever he started defend, you know, uh, arguing with Job. And he was saying, Job is the one who did that. Surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Are these humble words? Are these prideful words? Are these angry words? What does it sound like to you? Sounds pretty humble. I didn't know what I was talking about, Lord. Verse 4. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's it. That's the last thing we hear Job say. Did Job ever get an explanation from God? No, he never got an explanation. But he, he hears God talk about who he is. He reckons with God for who he is. He doesn't need an answer anymore. He's ashamed that he ever took issue with God to begin with. He repents in dust and ashes. 
He doesn't even ask God to restore his fortunes. He doesn't ask God for anything good. He just really comes to understand who God is and understands he deserves nothing from the Lord. And so he just repents, and that's where things end. So let's see what happens to him after that. Verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, that's one of his mean friends who came, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Does that sound nice? Yeah, it sounds nice. Let's go on. Verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third Karen Hapuch. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with all their brothers. I don't have a sermon on this, but isn't it interesting how much more time it spends talking about the three daughters than the seven sons? Doesn't even name the seven sons. What, they're, they're chopped liver, you know? But we got the three beautiful daughters with beautiful names. I don't have a sermon on that, like I said. It's just really interesting. Verse 16. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man full of years. This is the word of the Lord. So is that a happy ending? Seems to be. There's just one problem. I've got three children right now. Well, technically, I've got four children right now. If all four of my kids die, but I have eight kids later, am I going to forget the four kids that died first? That's the problem I have with this. Even though Job got greater blessings in the end, he got more children, greater, greater wealth and all this, does that mean that the damage didn't happen? Does that mean that he just has no right to be in pain anymore? Does that mean he shouldn't miss his children anymore? And I think the obvious answer is no. But, it, you know, that the text suggests that his blessings at the end should, in some sense, cover over the wrong that was done him. And I think that's something really hard. We have to remember that we are different from ancient peoples in, in a number of ways. And knowing all those ways is very difficult. And it's hard to know. Well, should... One thing I know, I do know that our generation... Our time in history, we are too sensitive to trauma. We just are. When you look at how ancient peoples of all times and places lived, they all had it rougher. They all complained less than we do. Our culture 
We're, we're too sensitive to trauma. We're too easily damaged. We just are. And that's, you know, I know a lot of us have been through bad stuff, and I know that we're damaged about it, and I never want to shame anybody who's damaged about it. But I remember there was, I've known people along the way who couldn't see the light today because of the darkness of the past. They were so damaged by the past that they, were, they could not open up to the blessings and the light right in front of them. And that's something real. And that's what, what trauma is. What trauma is not just damage in the past. It's trauma that continues to impact our present and our future that we carry with us. And to a degree, we decide how much trauma we carry. Now, an important phrase there was to a degree. But there are some people, I remember I, I had a roommate in seminary who was very damaged from a previous experience that she'd had. I know of many other women who'd been through an experience exactly like that or even worse who had gotten through it and that they didn't carry that damage. And one day we were in a conversation. I said, what's the difference between you and them? Why are you, able, why, why are you unable to get past this when so many other people have been able to? And she had no answer for that, just like our generation has no answer to why are we so messed up about relatively small things compared to generations who came before and were able to take on great weight and lead functional lives, still love their children, still be there for their wives, still be participatory citizens? This, these are hard questions we're dealing with here. And this is something that we have to bring to the Bible and we have to bear our lives to Jesus because... I think a lot of us do get traumatized and we expect to not have to function the rest of our lives and to get before Jesus' judgment seat and go, Jesus, I know you expect this of believers, but I was carrying so much damage, I just couldn't do it. What happens if Jesus said, yeah, you could have. You really could have and you chose not to. What then? I'm, I'm scared to death of that. Because there are ways that I feel weak. There are ways that I feel like I just don't have what's required. And you tell me, do I have what's required within myself to do everything God requires? No. None of us does. None of us does. If we imagine that there are just some privileged people somewhere who are not traumatized and they can follow Jesus, but the rest of us who've gotten damaged, we don't have to because we've, that is not the reality. The reality is we're all born broken. We don't even have to be traumatized to be broken. We're all born broken. Some of us in different ways, some of us to different degrees. We're all born messed up. Things happen along the line that are more occasion for us to get messed up. But then there's just two different kinds of people. The ones that trust God to give us what we need, lean upon him along the way and practice daily obedience, and those who don't. God, I'm too broken, you can't fix me. God, I've been through too much, you can't make it right. What the story of Job tells us is God can and will make it right but we can't imagine it. Just like we can't imagine the blessings of the latter half of his life making up for the things he went through in the first half of his life, that's the story. The story is God restores greater than what was had before. Another reality, there is no way to get through life without loss. No matter what happens, you and I are going to lose everything along the line. Loved ones, wealth, health, you don't get to take anything with you. All of us lose everything on down the line. And the question is, are you right with the one who makes things right in the end or not? Are you willing to follow God, even if he doesn't keep you from losing everything along the line? Are you willing to follow God if it's going to cost you your loved ones, if it's going to cost you your property? 
if it's going to cost you your job, if it's going to cost you your self-esteem, if it's going to cost you your, your reputation. All these things are constantly before us. Are you willing to follow God if you lose everything? Here's a, que- here's a question. Was Job willing to follow God even though he lost everything? Yes, he was. Was he an idiot for doing so? No, quite the opposite. He's lifted up as a righteous man, a model of faith. Now, for us Christians, I think we're wrong if we interpret this as God is going to make me wealthy and healthy and prosperous in this life if I follow him. I don't preach the prosperity gospel. I don't see that in the Bible. But as I read Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22, and it talks about the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal kingdom with, with Christ... What it tells me is something I cannot comprehend, which is that what God will give me and you in the kingdom is so much greater than any blessings we have here and now. So much greater than anything that we could have here and now. The blessings of the kingdom are so far greater than anything this side of heaven that I can spend my life this side of heaven suffering, sorrowing, go through trial and tribulation because I know that what stands on the other side of it is so much greater than anything I could get here and now. And I would actually say that belief right there is absolutely essential toward a living faith. And if you don't believe that, if you believe that the best that life has to offer is on this side of heaven, and you got to hold on to it as long and as hard as you can, and when you lose it, life is just awful and there is no consolation, that's the majority religion of people today. People who are scared to death of dying, scared to death of getting old, scared to death of losing their health, scared to death of making enemies, scared to death of losing family. People grabbing onto things as hard as they can, never just holding on for dear life, I can't let go. That betrays a lack of faith in a God who makes all things right, who restores all things. And that's what I think the end of Job holds up to us, is do we believe that God can restore everything that's been wrong in my life? There's things that's been done wrong in my life that I just cannot imagine ever being made right again. Do I believe that even though I can't imagine it, God can do it? If I believe that God can and will restore all things, and that the end of history is marked by him giving me a better life than anything I could have had here, then that's what gives me strength for the hard days of today. But if I don't have that hope, then I'm going to live like a child of this world in darkness and sin and shame. And in the end, I might hope to be with Jesus, but I know I won't be because I didn't trust him. So let's be like Job. Trust in the Lord. And even though we can't imagine the blessings making the wrong of the past right, let's trust that God can do what he said he's going to do. Amen? Um, the setup for this is understanding the differences in priesthoods. In the end, it's just, you know, in praise of Jesus. But, you know, it's good to be aware of what this means. Psalm 110 talks about an order of Melchizedek. God makes a promise to someone. Turns out it's Jesus. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And this comes from a story in Genesis where Abram had just been, Abraham had just been successful in battle. And the king of Salem, Jerusalem, came, and his name was Melchizedek, means my king of righteousness, says that he was a priest of the Most High God. Do we serve the Most High God? Yes, we do. That's the God enthroned in the heavens above. Uh, Jesus sits at his right hand. That God 
the priests of that God came, and Abraham gave him a tenth of all he had, a tithe, and then Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And this is before what happened at Mount Sinai with Moses, where they established the priesthood, was called the, the, the Leverett priesthood, those of the tribe of Levi were the priests for years and years. If you've ever met uh, someone with the last name Cohen or heard someone with the last name Cohen, Cohen is Hebrew for priest. Odds are they are a, a Levite of the tribe of Levi that would be a priest today if there was a temple. But the reason that they don't have Jewish priests today is because the temple got destroyed. The whole order of uh, bringing sacrifices and atoning for sin got destroyed. Jews believe that there are other things you can do nowadays that please the Lord and atone for sin. We don't need to talk about that today. The question is, was Jesus a priest? And for a lot of people back then, they would say, no, he was uh, a Judea. He was uh, of the, the tribe of Judah. He was not of the tribe of Levi. He couldn't be a priest. He was not of the right tribe. Well, the author of Hebrews says he was a priest of Melchizedek, of that more ancient order, that more pure order. That's how Jesus is a priest. He's a, of a better priesthood. He gives us a better covenant, and we have a better deal to consider with God. So that, those are the basic themes. If you didn't understand what I was saying, it's not for lack of my trying. It's just confusing stuff. But Sarah Beth is going to come do the reading now. And then we're not going to talk about that portion anymore, but we are going to talk about Jesus' greatness, which is where that reading ends. So let's pay attention to Sarah Beth. Our third reading is from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28, which begins on page 1867 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, for, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all 
when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. So at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul is upset with the church in Corinth because many of them are arguing that they have it better based on who, was bapti- who baptized them. I was baptized by Apollos. Well, I was baptized by Peter. Well, I was baptized by Jesus, you know, and, and they're, they're trying to outdo one another. This final part of the reading here about the supremacy of Jesus shows how ridiculous this is, you know, and, and if you, you weren't able to really boil down what Sarah Beth was reading, it was talking about how much better Jesus is than any other priest. He doesn't die. He doesn't sin. He is in heaven forever next to the Father. He is praying for us continually. All these things together mean that you and I have the best priest that anyone could ever ask for. And, and in case we're, pre, a lot of people look at priest as just a title. They don't look at it as like, you know, we know what a firefighter does. They fight fires, you know. We, we know what a, uh, a judge does, it, and he, he or she judges, you know. We, we don't know what a priest does. A priest we think is like a preacher, but no, a pre- preaching is not what a priest does. A priest can preach, but that's not what makes him a priest. A priest intercedes between a sinner and God, and they officiate over a sacrifice to do so. That's what a priest does. So that's what a Jewish priest did, and that's what Christian priests ostensibly do. But the, the, uh, if you read your Bible, <laughs> it calls us a nation of priests, a priestly nation. Because we get between a sinful world and a righteous God, and we reconcile sinners with God. We are all priests, but the only reason we can be a priestly nation is because of our high priest that sits enthroned in the heavens, and that's Christ Jesus. It's because of him that we can be made pure and perfect in God's sight. And if you didn't hear that word perfect, it was there twice in this reading. The old order of Levi uh, Leverett priests was not able to make people pure and perfect forever, was not able to cleanse them of their nature. The new deal through Christ Jesus is. That's how powerful it is. Whether or not we experience it is that powerful. A lot of people come into covenant with Jesus and they don't experience anything powerful. They find their way out. They just start living in the world again. Does that mean that this isn't real? No. It just means they didn't get it. It means the Holy Spirit didn't grab them. It means they're not saved. Those of us who get it understand what a big deal it was for Jesus to do what he did. He is the high priest who officiates his own sacrifice on the cross. We could not save ourselves. There was nothing that we could do. Jesus did the dying and he did the killing. He did it all for our sake. So because of that, we don't need another priest. We have direct access to the Father through our great high priest who is in heaven. And it doesn't matter who baptized us. It doesn't matter who instructed us in the faith. It doesn't matter who did my grandma's funeral. All that stuff doesn't matter. There have been times in the life of the church where pastors were exposed as charlatans or as bad believers, and people questioned, oh, do I need to get baptized again? Oh, do I need to go join a different church? And the answer is, no, if you've got a good church and you just have a crappy pastor, get rid of the pastor. And you don't need to redo everything he did. It's Jesus acting through the pastor that does it. The pastor doesn't do anything. That's why I always tell y'all not to thank me when you come forward for communion. I didn't do anything. It's Christ who did it all. I'm just acting as 
uh, an outward invisible sign of an inward invisible uh, uh, spiritual grace. I'm doing nothing, and your salvation doesn't hinge on me at all. It hinges on Jesus, and as Job said, there's nothing that can thwart God's plan. There's nothing we can do to mess up Jesus' ministry. We can just choose, we can choose to screw it up here and now. We can choose not to, to, to work with him. But even then, we don't mess up his plans, and we don't undo the good that's been done. That gives me a good, good encouragement. There's a meme I've seen. When God put a calling on your life, he factored in the fact that you're an idiot. That gives me so much comfort because he didn't call the perfect people. There are no perfect people. He called weak sinners, and then he makes us able. And because Christ is able, so are we. Amen? Some people sitting there going, did he just call me an idiot? Okay, it's time to do our final reading from the Gospel of Mark. Reading is chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. You can find it on page 1575 in your pew Bibles. And the setup for this, um, blind Bartimaeus, a lot of us have heard this story. He calls out to Jesus and calls him son of David. Now when he does so, Jesus was the son of Joseph. And that's how he would have been known. Jesus of Nazareth, son son of Joseph. When he's calling him son of David, David was hundreds of years ago. David was the the king that God made a covenant with that one of his descendants would always sit on the throne of Jerusalem forever. And the belief about the Messiah, rightly, was that the Messiah would be of the line of David because Messiah is the king that would restore the kingdom of Israel to God and his people. So when he's calling him son of David, that's code for you are the king that's come to restore the kingdom. So that's, this is a title that means a great deal. So oftentimes, I remember as a kid, I heard it over and over, son of David, son of David. Yeah, of course, Jesus is the son of David. No, what he's actually doing is saying, blind Bartimaeus is calling out to him saying, I know you're the Messiah. I know you've come to restore the kingdom. I know you're the biggest deal on earth. That's what he's saying. Okay, with that in mind, Mark 10, 46 through 52, listen again to the word of God. Then they came to Jericho, As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus! Anybody remember what the name Jesus means? Yeshua? What's it mean? That's Emmanuel. Jesus means Savior. Salvation. So he called out, Salvation, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know, blind Bartimaeus right here. This is is his song we're singing. 
All of us are born, we might not be blind literally, but all of us are born in sin, inclined towards evil and that continually, bent towards sinning, unable to save ourselves no matter how smart we are, no matter how strong our conscience, we cannot be saved outside of the supernatural touch of Jesus. And once he has touched you, he gives you that spiritual sight. You were blind, but now you see. And then what happens after that is really the question. The question is not, can Jesus heal? Will Jesus heal? Does Jesus love me? We actually know the answers to all these questions. The question that's the real mystery is, what are you going to do about it? When he has healed you, whenever he's given you spiritual sight, whenever he has shown his love for you, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to go on your way and do as you like? That's not really what Bartimaeus does. What does Bartimaeus do? He follows Jesus. And Jesus said, anyone who would come after me, let them deny themselves daily. Take, no, de deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. And then, gee, how do we follow Jesus? Well, we've got this whole big book, the Bible, that tells us how to do that. We have this wonderful community that models that and encourages one another to do that. Gee, we have this Holy Spirit that witnesses to our spirits that we are children of God and instructs us in the way. Brothers and sisters, we've been given everything we need to know how to follow Jesus. The question is not, do we have what we need? The question is, are we going to use it or not? Are we going to respond in the way that Jesus has told us or not? Are we going to walk with that spiritual side or are we going to act like we're still blind? I can put it a hundred different ways. The question is clear. May the answer be, I'm going to follow Jesus.